less than two months away. So I'm beginning to think about it and anticipate it actually quite a bit as I read the Scriptures. But last night uh, at sundown ended the days of Purim, <coughs> which we had kept. And last week I went through uh, at least a majority of the story there in Esther uh, to show how enemies arose against the Jews or God's people. We could substitute spiritual Israel in today. Uh, I did fail to cover a part, in fact, I didn't even bring the paper back, I meant to, uh, about the word myrtle, because it's only mentioned uh, as a plant four times in the Bible. Uh, one in Isaiah 41, where it talks about planting the seven trees or churches in the wilderness, and uh, Nehemiah also mentions it, and I forget right off the top of my head where the other two were, but they were both in conjunction with the church <clears throat> building the temple, the wall of Jerusalem there in Nehemiah. But interestingly enough, <clears throat> um, Esther's name was her Persian name. Hadassah was her Hebrew name, and it meant myrtle. So you have in the Bible... Oh, another one is in Zechariah 1, where it talks about uh, the man and the myrtle trees there. There's the third third one. Uh, and that's what uh, made me bring it together in that uh, we would have enemies here at the end time. And there was a man among the myrtle trees, and there was uh, the, the thing about war there with the, uh, the red horse, the bay, and so on, uh, and trouble that would come. Uh, on the church. So, Esther, in my um, mind, Hadassah, is a definite uh, type of the end-time church. And what they went through there with their enemies and God's deliverance from behind the scenes, I feel, is very, very important and a lesson for us today as we face enemies as well. And in that, I rehearse that uh, Mordecai and Esther did go to the civil authorities to the king for help. And uh, they received that help. wasn't exactly in the form they wanted, but I think God worked it out so that they were able to take care of their enemies themselves uh, with the blessing of the civil government. So that might have some portent for today. Uh, we will certainly see how it plays out. Uh, because we have also approached the civil authorities after having been used, misused, and abused by them as a result of those who made false accusations and false claims against us. Uh, so we're kind of in the middle of it. I think I said two-thirds of the way through it last week. <clears throat> so with that in mind... I want to continue that theme today. That sermon was just before Purim, and this is the day after. But I think it's still timely to consider some promises of God in relationship even to ourselves, because we are facing spiritual enemies at the moment, apart from Satan, uh, I mean human ones, and the amount of people against any who would follow God is going to increase until the end-time church is going to be set against by the whole 
world. When the two go out to preach, the whole world will turn against them. So what we are facing today, in one sense, is kind of pink toothbrush. It's small by comparison to the pressure and persecution and hate that is going to come. So, in terms of our present trials and those who would do harm to us and take from us, uh, we need to be considering it a good trial, a good test, and, dare I say this, rejoice in it. Because it is conditioning us, it is teaching us to face even greater problems down the road. Now, God promises protection, which we'll get into if we will do His will, but still in all, it is going to come from this small amount of trouble that we are having today by comparison, and it will be the whole world and the whole satanic, demonic uh, company as well who would destroy God's people and who will, in fact, take over uh, the, the temple and Jerusalem, which are about to be built. And they will be there during the times of the Gentiles for three and a half years, uh, having taken it over. So, is it futile for us to go forward with what God asks us to do in building the temple and the Jerusalem later? No. God's already told us exactly how it will turn out and how He will take care of them later. So, even though it's difficult and it's frustrating to deal with what we have to deal with today, I think we need to back up a little bit and say, hey, what can we learn from this? Can we learn to trust God? Can we learn to have patience? Can we learn to have faith that He will take care of us no matter how bad it gets? Because how do we gain faith? By hearing the Word of God. And in these pages... We find faith-building material, that if we will believe what God says, then our trust and our faith, our belief in Him, will increase. Now, during the days of Purim, as a personal Bible study, uh, I started going through the Psalms at the beginning and reading on through. And the reason I did was because it had stuck in my mind how much David had faced enemies against him personally, uh, within his family, uh, within the circle of friends and acquaintances and business associates that he had as king, and then the enemies in the countries around, and even earlier in his life before he was king, the persecution and murder attempts by Saul, and uh, so on and so forth, and he had learned to trust God. I think going up against Goliath was a good time. Uh, he had learned to trust God prior to that by taking care of the sheep and God delivering the lion and the uh, bears into his hands. And he had learned to rely on God. So when Goliath showed up, he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine coming against God? So he looked immediately to God and God delivered him and Israel from Goliath and the Philistine army. So he had had, in his early life, things happen that caused him 
to look at whatever he was up against and to turn to God for help. And you start seeing that in the very first chapters of the Psalms, and it continues throughout, off and on, but it's, it's always there as one of the major themes, if you will, of the book of Psalms, was David uh, praying about, worry, maybe worrying to some degree, but seeking help from God against his enemies. So I thought uh, that it would be a help to go through these myself right now when we are facing a challenge from enemies within here who are still trying to take away uh, me and the rest of the land from you. Uh, they might not at this point admit it, but the things that they are doing belie that and show that that is exactly what they still want to do. So I'm going to turn to uh, Isaiah, uh, to Psalms 55 to start. Uh, this is one that actually uh, we have in our hymn book that Dwight Armstrong put to music. <laughs> and it's one that Nelson also commented that he had read recently. So since we both read it, uh, we've got two witnesses that it ought to be read today, I guess. <laughs> Uh, so this was a good one to pick out, let's put it that way, because it has to do with uh, people who were supposedly friends. But let's kind of skip through this one, uh, it and chapter 56, both. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my supplication. So what I'm trying to get out of this and have you get out of it, and maybe as, as we continue to fight uh, our battles and our enemies, uh, it's a good idea, would make a good personal study to go through here and see just how David prayed. So you know how to pray. Because David was a man after God's own heart, and the way that David approached it obviously was pleasing to God because he set all these psalms as Scripture. So you can feel free to pray as David prayed. And it may take some prayer and some asking of God for belief and faith in order to even pray some of these prayers. Because some of them are pretty strong, and some of them you might be a little hesitant to pray that way. But whatever you find, your hand finds to do, you're supposed to do with your might and with zeal. So anything that David prayed here is not too strong for us. So he asked God to hear him. Attend to me and hear me. I mourn in my complaint and make a noise. He groaned. He mourned. Uh, he was frustrated because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they cast iniquity upon me, and in wrath they hate me. So they were trying to find sin or iniquity or wrongdoing in him, and they were angry with him and hated him. Fearfulness and trembling are come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. Now, they were out to actually physically kill David in many cases, even his own sons and those around him, and there were threats made on his very life. So maybe he was feeling it in a more personal way, in a sense, than we are today, and yet what has come down on us is also very personal, because they are making up all kinds of uh, sins and excuses and iniquities to accuse us of falsely. 
And I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then should I fly away and be at rest. That's quoted also in Jeremiah said that there, third, fourth, fifth chapter, wherever it was. Oh, that I had wings so I could fly away. You know, people accuse me, well, you're just here because you're greedy and you want this land. You know what? If it weren't for God's purpose here, I could care less. I grew up in a desert in West Texas. I'm not really prone to like deserts. I loved it in Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana, and Alaska is the reason I was there and asked for a transfer there and worldwide to start with. I could have had maybe more responsibility and bigger congregations elsewhere, but I wanted to be in the mountains. I think God wanted me there. But I would not be here. If, it, if I thought this was just something for me, I would have been gone a long time ago. I'd be somewhere in the Rockies or Alaska. Believe me. And I'm not saying I don't want to be here. I want to be here because I feel God wants me here to do a job and wants us on this land to do a job. It isn't the best place that I would come to had I had my way. And God gave me my way. He let me live in all those places that I loved prior to putting me out here. And I'm thankful to him for having done that. And I'm not sitting here wanting to go back there. I want to stay here, but only for his purposes. Otherwise, I'd be packing tonight. Okay? So to think I'm here for money or to have this property, nah, it's not what it's about. I'd love to fly away, as David put here, if it was just a matter of my own physical desires and so on. Lo, then I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness. Well, he was at Jerusalem with a lot of people and enemies around, and in a sense, we've already flown to the wilderness, so this is far better at this point than what he was having. And he never did and never was allowed to fly away into the wilderness. God instructed us to, and we did, and we're here. And I'm not trying to put this place down. Uh, there's some beautiful areas around here, and Zion is about as pretty as it gets. So I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not discontent. Uh, and you adapt to wherever you are, and this kind of grows on you. But what he was concerned about was that which beset him. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest, metaphor for the people that were bugging him. Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues. That's a pretty strong statement. But you're able to use that. Because God says, right here, that we can pray. And David had asked for his uh, help and not to hide himself from this supplication. For I've seen violence and strife. Argument, anger in the city. Day and night they go about it upon the walls thereof. Mischief also and sorrow are in the midst of it. Causes all kinds of confusion and problems. Wickedness is in the midst thereof. Deceit and guile depart not from her streets. It's all around us right here, right now. For it was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. Neither was it... He that hated me, that did magnify himself against me, then I would have hid myself from him. 
wasn't outsiders. <coughs> they were the worst. But it was you, a man, my equal, my guide, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked into the house of God in company. So this was people he'd been close to and had been in the temple of God with. Let And then look what he says. Let death seize upon them and let them go down quick into the grave. For wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. As for me, I will call upon God and the eternal shall save me. Now, the problem with all this is that those who are against us and trying to destroy this church will read the same chapter and they will apply it as if God is on their side. Of course they think God is on their side. So did Korah, so did Nathan, so did Abiram, so did Ananias and Sapphira, uh, so did Uzzah. Uzzah wasn't a rebel in the normal sense of the word. He just reached out to steady the ark thinking he was doing a good thing of protecting and helping God protect the ark. And he got fried. God doesn't need help protecting what he's doing. Now, we need to be sure what they do and what they think and how much they think God is on their side. Uh, that's their business. What we need to do is what David says. As for me, I will call upon God, and the Eternal shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray, and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Daniel also prayed those three times of the day. So it's not just your nighty-night prayer, but when you're under pressure, uh, prayer should be a focus. We eat physically at least generally three times a day. And uh, beginning, middle, end of the day, we need to be crying out to God. <clears throat> He's delivered my soul in peace from the battle that was against me, for there were many with me. God shall hear and afflict them, even he that abides of old. Now, some of our enemies here have said, well, you're the rebel. Well, we'll let God sort that out. We just do need to do our part of obeying him, serving him, calling out to him, and let him determine who the rebels are. Because they have no changes, therefore they fear not God. And the margin says they exchange wickedness for good and don't hear God. He has put forth his hands against such as be at peace with him. He has broken his covenant, these people. The words of his mouth, remember this is people who have gone to the temple with us. Words of his mouth are smoother than butter, but in the heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet were they drawn swords. I still got people who say, well, we still love you, in spite of the fact that we file a suit to try to destroy the church and you. You know, forked tongue hypocrisy. What is love? not just an emotion. Cast your burden upon the eternal, and he shall sustain you. <clears throat> he shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. There's a promise of protection right there. But you, O God, shall bring them down into the pit of destruction. Bloody and deceitful men shall not live out half their lot days, but I will trust in you. And he lived out his full days, 70 years. 
Now, this is, this is persecution and, and trouble and hate in general. We'll get down to more specific stuff later. But I wanted to show you David's basic approach, uh, as echoed through many, many of the Psalms. He says, Be merciful to me, O God, in chapter 56, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresses me. It never lets up, day after day after day. My enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O you most high. What time I am afraid, I will trust in you. So if fear comes upon us, he says, put it aside, trust in God. In God I will praise His Word. In God I have put my trust. <clears throat> well, we read His Word, we see what He says, as we're doing right at the moment, and put trust in it. I will not fear what flesh can do to me. So He tells us, don't worry, don't fear what flesh can do, what men can do to you. Every day they rest my words. Don't they twist everything we say? Mangle it? With scriptures, all their thoughts are against me for evil. Some of them are doing everything they can to find anything they can to accuse me of to get me in trouble and put me in jail. They're working hard at it and have been for years, some of them. Not more than one, some. They gather themselves together, have meetings. They hide themselves. They mark my steps. They watch everything I do when they wait for my soul. I've even had people I've seen hiding behind the weeds, watching everything I was doing, literally. And running around with cameras, trying to, picture, trying to get a picture of us doing something wrong. Nelson and I experienced that. Oh, we're going to catch you. That's waiting for your soul. Shall they escape by iniquity? In your anger, cast down the people, O God. Legitimate prayer. You tell my wanderings, put you my tears into your bottle. He says, I recognize, God, that you're aware of me. You see where I wander and what I do, and please bottle up my tears. <laughs> in other words, save these tears. I want you to consider them. Are they not in your book? When I cry to you, then shall my enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. So he trusted in his relationship that he had built with God. Now, he uh, caused problems with that relationship at times, but he repented deeply and got back on track, and he knew that God was for him. In God will I praise his word, in the eternal will I praise his word. In God have I put my trust, I will not be afraid what man can do to me. So when God says, don't fear men, fear me, David took him seriously. So he didn't sit around and worry about what people would do, but he turned to God and asked for help and asked God to get rid of his enemies, even put them in the grave. <clears throat> Your vows are upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Will yet not you deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Now that is reminiscent of Matthew 24, where he says to flee from the persecutors there at that time and trust in God to deliver us, knowing that he will do so if we do our part and he counts us worthy as a result. So here's a primer, really, 
a beginning at least in a couple of chapters of how we are to approach God in terms of our enemies. And you can learn a lot more by continuing to read them. Now, let's get a bit more specific because that was David a long time ago and that was Esther and Purim a long time ago even though it translates forward to today since the Bible is written for those of us upon whom the ends of the world have come. Let's go to Micah 4. This is a scripture that is pivotal for you and me. <clears throat> it's one that I used in the Minor Prophet series, of course, as I went through Micah to show uh, what he's doing with a small part of the church that will swell and grow to be a 10% remnant. Uh, and we emphasize certain things in it, but some of it I did not emphasize nearly so much, and now uh, I see a need to do so. But let's pick it up here <clears throat> in, at the beginning of chapter 4. But in the last days, so we know when this is talking about, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the eternal shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people will flow to it. So we know from Haggai and Zechariah and from other places that a gathering is going to come to the mountain of the house of the eternal to build the temple in the last days, and people will come. And many people shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the house and there God will teach us of His ways, and we will walk in His paths, where the law shall go forth out of Zion, and the word of the Eternal from Jerusalem in the last days. And people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, uh, the animosity, the striving, the problems will be put aside. God says in Haggai 2, I will bring peace in this place. So instead of gearing up for war, people will be gearing up to do a peaceful work here in the last days on the mountain of the house of the eternal at Jerusalem and Zion. <clears throat> they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. Where else do we find this particular phraseology? Zechariah 3. Each man will sit under his vine and fig tree in the time of the two witnesses and the remnant. There will be peace and prosperity. That's what vine and fig tree mean. So here it talks about the last days. In, uh, in Zechariah 3, it's talking clearly of the last days. It's speaking of God's church. It's not speaking about the world here. That comes later in the millennium. This is before that. Uh, the two witnesses in the remnant are before the millennium ever gets here. <clears throat> and that's what this whole context is. In that day, says the Eternal, will I assemble her that halts, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. Didn't he say, he's the one that scattered us, spewed us out? Read Lamentations. I did this, he says over and over and over again. So he'll take care of the crippled, and those that have been driven away, and her that he has afflicted. And I will make her that limped a remnant. Spiritually, we limped. But he shows in many, many other scriptures that he is going to do some physical healing as well. So this could include both physical and spiritual. And her that was cast far off, a strong people. And the Eternal shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. 
So once we come to Zion and gather to do God's work, we'll never depart from His protection from that point on and come the first resurrection, be changed, and will dwell in Jerusalem forever. <clears throat> so this is a forever thing that occurs. I mean, even when we're run out of Jerusalem after building the walls of Jerusalem, we go straight to Zion. So it's from then on. And you, O watchman of the flock, it should be translated, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So God is going to be setting up a mini-kingdom in Zion and Jerusalem that is a very small uh, production of what the millennium and the reign of Christ will be. Remember, he tells us in Zechariah and in Isaiah that he will be God with us. He'll come and dwell with us. So it is a microcosm of the kingdom of God. It is, we aren't spirit yet. But he will give the same conditions, the Edenic conditions, as Isaiah 51 says in another place, so that the world can see what that would be like. So he says, you will have the first dominion, uh, the government of God, as he wants it administered by those who are in Jerusalem and Zion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. But he says, in the meantime, uh, he says, until we reach that point, now why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? Herbert Armstrong was our counselor, and in that sense, a king over us. He was the one God appointed to lead us, and he's dead now. So here we are, the whole church, crying out, what do we do now? For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. Now, he uses this in Isaiah 7, saying to bring forth the Christ child in our lives, which is a prophecy, a timed prophecy of right now. And Micah 4 shows that same condition here on us. <clears throat> he says, be in pain. Well, aren't we? <laughs> and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shall you go forth out of the city, and you shall dwell in the field. Now, we read that, and that's why we're here. And you shall go even to Babylon, out of the midst of it, as it says in, I think, Isaiah 48 and other places, but still in it. There shall you be delivered. Now, that is a re the, the, there shall be, you be delivered is a reference back to a woman in travail with birth pangs. And he says, once we come out here, this is where the deliverance of the Christ child will be, of Isaiah 7 and of other places further in Isaiah itself. Here's where the deliverance will come. There, in the wilderness, the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now, I emphasized before how we were to come out and be in pain and, and, and struggle, and we would be delivered. But here, and that was before our enemies showed up, before we knew they were around or coming. 
So it didn't emphasize it as much. But notice what it says. God will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now, also many peoples, and that can easily be translated peoples, not nations, are gathered against you that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. So he says right here in the wilderness, as we travail to give, to bring forth, we will have many people who gather against us who want us defiled. Can you say dissolved or destroyed? That's what the lawsuit asked for. And let our eye look upon Zion. Let's get rid of them. We'll be the ones. They're the rebels. Okay, go on. But they know not the thoughts of the eternal. They twist Scripture. They lie. They defraud. They steal. They commit felony, extortion. They don't know God's thoughts. Neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. You know what you do when you get sheaves in on the floor of the uh, threshing area? You put cows or mules on them and you stomp the grain off the stalks. It's a, it's a violent maneuver to get the separation of the chaff from the wheat. Now, I'll gather them, you thresh them. He didn't just take care of Goliath, did he? He told or inspired David to say, I'm going to go thresh him. <laughs> thresh him to the ground uh, with Esther and Mordecai. They went and asked for relief and help. And then what did they do? They went out and threshed their enemies. In that case, kill them. So he gives us something to do here. You need to go back and read David's Psalms and how he approached his enemies. Now here God says, thresh, like shaking an olive tree violently to get the olives to fall off, the wheat off the stalk or the corn or whatever. For I will take your horn iron and I will make your hooves brass. Very hard substances. Uh, able then to pound and to bang on and to thresh violently. And you shall beat in pieces many people. And I will consecrate their gain to the eternal and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. Now there's a promise. God says, if you come out here and do this, enemies will rise. You are to arise and thresh them, and we'll see more instruction along these lines. And they are trying to take what God has given you, this land. But God says their gain and their substance will go to the eternal of the whole earth. He is going to take away what they have for his purposes. Can you read that any other way?
Now let's go to Isaiah 41. Remember that the last few chapters before chapter 40 of Isaiah 36, 7, 8, 9 are about Herbert Armstrong uh, as a type in uh, Hezekiah. And God ends that up by saying that his sons will be eunuchs, powerless, unable to reproduce in Babylon. And Herbert Armstrong says, well, there'll be peace in my day, which there essentially was. And then war started in trouble after he died in, in earnest. So in 40, <clears throat> he starts a new work uh, out in the wilderness, making the straight, straight in the desert a highway for God, and shows then how God, the glory of God will be revealed there. And part of the message is to cry that uh, the flower, the grass will wither and die, but also to bring good tidings to Jerusalem and Zion, down in verse 9 and 10, uh, because God is going to come and harvest the world, but he is also going to bless his people. So it's kind of a two-part message. And as we've read through the minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, isn't that what we've seen is those two themes? The trouble is coming on the nation, trouble is coming on the church, but God would deliver. And there was good news in there after the bad news is over. So that's, that's what we found all through the prophecies, all through the Bible. That's the message. And then he goes on to say that all the nations are as nothing, and like a drop in the bucket, and how he will take care of it. Uh, verse 31, They that wait upon the eternal shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings of eagles, they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. So he's going to do a restoration that will give strength, power, courage, and ability to do what needs to be done. So then he goes on down and says that Jacob isn't much. Uh, he came from the chosen seed of Abraham, his friend, in verse 8. Uh, and he says, I've chosen you, Jacob. Speaking of spiritual Israel here, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you away. Then he says, fear you not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. That's pretty powerful language. Behold, notice this, all they that were incensed against you shall be ashamed and confounded. They are trying to shame and confound us now and to drive us off as worthless. They that strive with you shall perish. Pretty strong. What did David say about his enemies? Let them perish. What does God say about our enemies? He says he's going to cause them to perish. doesn't tell us to kill them. He says he'll take care of it. And there are other scriptures about our very situation here in Anatol. We'll get to if I have time. But show this very thing. For I am the eternal your God... I, the eternal your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob and you men of Israel. That makes Jacob look like a pretty small group, doesn't it? Just a worm. Not much to it at this point. Spiritual Jacob. Because he's our Redeemer. Said there in Micah 4, he would redeem us. 
Now notice verse 15. Same thing we read in Micah 4. Behold, I will make you a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth. doesn't say horn of iron and feet of brass here, but having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and shall make the hills as chaff. For you shall fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the eternal, and shall glory in the Holy One of Israel. So here he promises us that we are not to fear, he will take care of us, and then he instructs us that as he gives us the power and the opportunity to thresh and to blow the chaff away. So there, the onus is on us to do something as well. Not just stand back and say, God, strike them with lightning. No, that's not the approach. The approach that God tells us is to respond to Him with faith, patience, total trust, and then go about threshing. Let's go on down. Verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, we don't seem to find the nourishment, the strength, the help that we need, and their tongue faileth, fails for thirst, I, the Eternal, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. So have we reached the point where we're about to die out here and don't have much help? Don't know where to get any help? says, I'll help. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness seven trees. Verse 20, that they may see and know and consider and understand together. We're here. We've been promised protection. We've been told to thresh. And then God says, right after that threshing occurs and the enemies are taken care of, then he's going to have the gathering of the seven churches in the wilderness. So he's showing here specifically when this must occur. He did the same in Micah. He says, there you'll be redeemed. There you will be delivered and be a sharp threshing instrument and go after your enemies. Then it talks about the Assyrian coming into the land right after that because the gathering is occurring. Here he says, trust me, fight your enemies, I will deliver you, and then I will gather the remnant. Because the enemies have to be gone, obviously, before that can happen. So that gives us a direction for our prayers, doesn't it? Father, we know what's coming next. Please help Take care of the current problem. These are specific prophecies of specific things that must occur in a specific order. See that there? That's the way it's laid out. He goes on down and he says, we're, we're, to, we're going to see all this and consider and we're going to understand it together. Here we are together to understand this. He says, let, let somebody else show you what's going to happen. He says they can't. They, they don't have any reasons. They don't know. they got no clue. He challenges them to show things that are coming hereafter. He says, then you're of nothing. Your work of nothing. 
and an abomination is he that chooses you. And he says, he's raised up one from the east that will come and tread on the enemies as the potter treads clay and so on. And he says, I'll send one to tell of them that are coming, the two plus the remnant. He says, they don't have any idea. They don't know. This message that I am talking about today, no one on this earth but us understands. Maybe there's somebody somewhere, but I've never heard of it. Okay? There will be one that gives good tidings. No more than that. So I know there's no more than that, because God says so right here. We're the only ones that do understand. Verse 28, For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them. There was no counselor that when I asked of them could answer a word. Uh, let's go to chapter 20 of Ezekiel. I've got a lot to cover here. I, I was going to look for some more, but I've got more than I can handle already. <clears throat> Zechariah 20, and about verse 33. Um as I live, says the eternal God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you, and I will bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand. There's a gathering, right? He says, I'm angry, and I'm going to get over that with you, and I'm going to gather you. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face. So Christ is going to bring them. He's going to come and be God with us and argue, teach face to face. Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, says the eternal God. Now, I don't know that he showed himself there, but he was there in presence and pleaded with them. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. So we have to um, go through muster. We have to be checked out to be sure we are spiritually healthy, pass under the rod, because that's how they called them. If they were weak or sick, they were set aside and weren't counted under the rod as healthy. <coughs> And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Eternal. So there are some who are going to try to come, apparently, or who are already here, who will want to go in. I think there's a reason we're right outside what they call here the Canaan Mountains right now. Not far from Zion. Not far from Jerusalem, but we're not there yet. And there's some who will not be allowed to go there to do what has to be done, building the temple in Jerusalem. Not going to be allowed. They won't enter into the land, the promised land of Israel, where those things will be done. Uh well, there's a little more as we go on down, but I, I want to hasten on here. <clears throat> let's go to let's go to Ezra next. Ezra and Nehemiah are a direct uh, type of where we are today and where we're headed. 
because uh, when they left Babylon at the end of the 70 years of captivity, they immediately went to uh, Jerusalem to begin building the temple. And we're at the end of the 70 years, and this time, as Zechariah 1 shows us, and we'll go there, and I'll show you how Micah and Isaiah 41 and these scriptures fit perfectly with what Zechariah and Ze- 1 and 2 say. But here in uh, Ezra, they had gathered to build a temple. Shows who all came and everything. Uh, I had down two here. I don't, I don't see what I was after there. Uh, in chapter three, though, they came to build, and uh, where is it here? I didn't write down the verses. Uh, Uh, let's see, verse 2. They gathered, and then they then stood up uh, Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and Zerubbabel, and offered burnt offerings and so on. And they kept the Feast of Tabernacles. What am I looking for here? Because enemies showed up. <laughs> that's, that's, where, that's where I'm headed. Maybe it's chapter 4 where I first picked it up. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity built at the temple, they came to Zerubbabel, the chief of the fathers, and said, let us build with you. Didn't we just read there in Ezekiel that some would say, oh, well, this is, this is for us too. We're going. Oh, no, you're not. For we seek your God as you do, and we do sacrifice to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher. But Zerubbabel and Joshua said, Nah, you have nothing to do with us to build a house to our God. We ourselves together will build it. So there will come a time where we will have to turn away people who want to come and help, saying, you are not of the daughter of Zion. You are not called here as part of the remnant to do this. God will make it clear who is and who is not. Uh But then what happened in verse 4? The people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors, lawyers, huh, against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even till the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they went to the legal department and hired counselors to try to frustrate what the people of God were trying to do. We've had that happen to us already. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, there's the story of Esther again. They talked about the accusations against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. See, that's, that's brought here into Ezra, which is, a, again, an end-time book about today. And they wrote to the king, and they talked about how these people are fighting us and trying to destroy us. Isn't that the story of Esther all over again? Uh, and we need help. And they asked the king to say, give now commandment, verse 21, to cause these men to cease. Oh, no, this is where uh, I guess the enemies were saying, don't let these people do it. Don't let this city be built after another commandment, and so on. Uh, so this worked. The, 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 the work of God, verse 24, ceased 
on the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased into the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. There was a lull there in the action because enemies had come, and they slowed things down. They stopped things for a while. Then Haggai and Zechariah stood up, and so did Zerubbabel and Joshua, and began to build again. They went after it. Now, there was an interruption, was there not, from Herbert Armstrong, who was building the temple of God, and that got stopped and frustrated. Quit. Died. Now, this wanted to be started again. So the story fits. The house of the great God, in verse 8, had to be built. Um... Chapter 6, I want to hear a little bit. And let's pick it up in verse 15. This house was finished on the third day of the month Adar, which is now, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And they dedicated the house, as we will do. That's why we keep the Feast of Dedication now. And they kept the Passover. Uh, there was something else in here I wanted, and I didn't, uh, I didn't write it all down. But in Nehemiah, we have essentially the same story. Uh, here in chapter 1 of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah had come to build the walls of, the Jeru of uh, Jerusalem. And he says in verse 11, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I arose in the night, and I and some few men with me, neither told I any man uh, but my God... The, what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode on. So he went out and, he, and inspected the job that God had given him to do, and how to build a wall, how, where it was, and all of that. Verse 16, the rulers knew not where I went or what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work, because he realized there would be opposition, there would be enemies, there would be those who would try to stop it. And then he said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and the gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. And then he told them how God had led him to do this in verse 18. So they said then, okay, I agree. God would have this done and must have told you that. Let's get up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Then I and Nehemiah answered them and said, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah told the enemies there the same thing that Ezra had in building the temple. So there was opposition. Uh, they conspired to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder the work in chapter 4, verse 8. 
but we made our prayer to God in verse 9 and set a watch against them day and night because of them. We went ahead with the work in spite of it. Our adversary said in verse 11, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. That's what our enemies here have done. They've said, Cause this work to cease, let it be dissolved, and give us their assets. And yet we saw in Micah 4 that God is going to give their assets for His purposes. It doesn't say directly to us, but to Him. And He can do with it then as He pleases. <clears throat> Verse 15, it came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known to us, their the conspiracy, and God had brought their counsel to nothing, that we returned all of us to the wall and everyone to his work. He had told them in verse 14, don't be afraid of them. So the story in Ezra and Nehemiah is very much parallel with what we have going on right here today. Um, let's go then to Isaiah 54. Here again is speaking of the gathering. 52, he tells us to shake the yoke off our neck and sit up and not be walked on anymore. Well, if you're a sharp threshing instrument with a horn of iron and hooves of brass and teeth, why be walked on? Don't be walked on anymore. That's what he says in uh, verse chapter 52 uh, and verse 2. Don't shake the bonds that have been put on you off. And then uh, he talks about the gathering uh, in verse 11, 12, 13. Then the Passover. So that seems to time it. And then in 54, he says he's going to really start this gathering. But uh, what I want to pick up here is uh, verse 4. You'll be increasing. Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed, neither be you confounded, for you shall not be put to shame. For you shall forget the shame of your youth and shall not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. So he says, when I start this gathering, the enemies will be gone, and you will not have to worry about that and be ashamed and confounded. It'll be taken care of by then. That's why we're to rise and shake the bond off our neck. Then he goes on down and says, um, verse 13, All your children shall be taught of the eternal, and great shall be the peace of your children. You'll be established in righteousness. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against you, shall fall for your sake. So he will have taken care of the enemies. If any more arise, he's going to take care of them. They won't be able to touch us. Uh, they were able to touch them there in Ezra and Nehemiah, but God took care of it, and they finished the job. Now from there, let's go to... Well, let's go to Jeremiah 11 next. We've been here some months back, but in this context, I want to, to show you this again. <clears throat> now, you know that Jeremiah was very involved with Anatoth and was told to buy a field there. And if you go to Jeremiah 
29, let's see, where is it in there? I forget now. Maybe it's in the early 30s where he's instructed to do that. Uh, it shows that God will protect there as well. But here, he's talking about the conspiracy, uh, verse 9, among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They're turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers. We're warned not to do that in Zechariah 1 at the time of the two witnesses and the remnant, right? But they have anyway. <clears throat> They're despising those whom God has sent to teach and trying to get rid of them. Verse 14, pray, pray not for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry to me for their trouble. So God is going to be with those who rise up to thresh. What has my beloved to do in my house, seeing she has worked lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from you? When you do evil, then you rejoice. We have people right here now who are lying and stealing and committing fraud and um, extortion. And they're saying it's good. They're rejoicing, saying God's on their side. What does God say will happen to liars and thieves? Read Revelation 21. They don't repent, they're going to the lake of fire. Not going to be in the kingdom of God. No liars, no thieves, no adulterers. No any of those things that are breaking the laws of God. So you do evil and rejoice. I, I just got emails just the last few days about people who are rejoicing and not repenting of what they've done, but they think they're right. Still think they're right. Even though they signed that lawsuit and tried to destroy this church. The Eternal called your name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. He's talking about right here. Jeremiah and Anatoth. He called us a green olive tree and fair. But then there are those who have sinned, and he has torn it apart. For the eternal of hosts that planted you has pronounced evil against you for the evil of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. Lying and cheating and stealing is incense to Satan, not to God. Now, Jeremiah says, And the Eternal has given me knowledge of it, and I know it. Then you showed me their doings. So, God made Jeremiah aware. Now, who is this addressed to? This is addressed to the one that God had put in charge. It was not addressed to those who had rebelled against those God put in charge, but it was addressed to the ones who were demeaning or trying to get rid of Jeremiah. You don't go against those whom God has placed there to do a job. It's his job to take care of them, one way or another, not yours. We were just trying to save this place. We were just trying to protect this place. From me. Now, who sent me out here? Did they? They weren't even around. God gave me the message, gave me the understanding of these prophecies. And I'm the one who read them and told people what they needed to do based on what God had said. 
And it has been done. And they did come. And then they found whatever reasons to put me down and try to get rid of me and get rid of you, the church. So there was a change there. But it wasn't me that changed. It was them. Some of them decided they wanted this land, and then they began to talk it among themselves and turned against what God is doing here. Whispering behind the walls, as Ezekiel says. Chapter 33. I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter, and I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be no more remembered. That's what that lawsuit essentially said. And it's what they are saying when they accuse me of murdering my wife. Go to jail and stay there till you die. <laughs> you know, that's the sentence for murder. Same thing, right here. But, O Lord of hosts, that judges righteously, that tries the reins in the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. That sounds like David, doesn't it? In the Psalms. For unto you have I revealed my cause. David did. He got on his knees and he repented of his sins. He asked for God's mercy and God's help and God's forgiveness and then told him to get rid of his enemies. Jeremiah did the same thing. Now, therefore, thus says the Eternal of the men of Anatoth that seek your life. Now, I'm not the rebel to hear that's trying to seek anybody's life. I'm not accusing anybody of murder and trying to put them in jail. This is talking about the ones that are trying to do it to somebody. Okay? That ought to be clear. So the pronouncement is on them, not on us. Here's what to say. Prophesy not in the name of the Eternal that you die not by our hand. That's what they say. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And there shall be no rem remnant of them, for I will bring evil upon the men of Anatoth, even the year of their visitation. <clears throat> He's saying here, they're going into the tribulation, and not one of them will live. They will be destroyed. Now, I hope to God they repent before dying in the tribulation. I do, because I, I, I've loved these people. As David said, they went to the temple of God with us, and then they turned against us. So I'm not against them, and I'm not seeking their lives. I hope they repent and turn to God and are saved. But he's already made it clear that man, woman, and child are going into the tribulation and die of the sword and the famine. That's what he says. And we have our part in threshing them and getting them out of here. Let's go to Zechariah 1 now and see that. Because all these scriptures we've been reading up till now coalesce, they come together, they dovetail right here in Zechariah 1 and 2. Now, we've been through this a lot recently, but hey, uh, it's, it's a great part of the story. He even tells us in Haggai, as he starts gathering the people together, uh, verse 5 of chapter 2, uh, where do I, I, my eye saw it, and then it, okay, here it is. 
According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Mitzrayim, so my spirit remains among you. Fear you not. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, but don't you fear, because I'm here. I'm going to take care of you. Now we go to Zechariah, and it warns people today, right now, today, Haggai, Zechariah, right now, today, not to go against these prophecies, but they have. So he says, there are 70 years here, verse 12. Uh, How long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have had indignation these threescore and ten years? And I've timed that from 1947 when God started a college through Herbert Armstrong to train a ministry to go out and build houses, church houses, their own houses, to have children of their own and to have spiritual children, uh, 70 years. It would be a long captivity. So the church was in the throes of Babylon, scattered all through Babylon and all around the world of Babylon for 70 years. And when the 70 ends, and I believe it is happening here at the end of 2017, 70 years later, God is going to begin to gather and to build again. I know this by numbers, you know. That's what Daniel said he learned when he read Jeremiah, that this is the way it would be. And what Herbert Armstrong did in 1947 to to start training a ministry to take care of things is what God will do when he brings the remnant together and feeds them through the seven golden candlesticks of Zechariah 4 where the two pour out the holy oil to the churches the seven churches planted in the wilderness of Isaiah 41. It's all coming together right now. I think the 70 is about done. And the Eternal answered me with good and comfortable words. And he said, I'm jealous for Jerusalem and Zion with a great jealousy. He hasn't forgotten us. He says, we will prevail and bring forth. And we'll find him when we seek him with our whole heart in Jeremiah 29. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased. While we were out there those 70 years of trying to build worldwide in the church and spiritual houses to dwell in, God was a little displeased with that work. But when Herbert Armstrong died and the heathen took over, he became sore displeased, and then he spewed it out and scattered it. They helped forward the affliction, he says. This is recent history. Therefore, thus says Eternal, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies, and my house shall be built in it, says Eternal. Now, that's a prophecy for where we are today. He is going to do this very shortly now, okay? After 70 years, just like first year of Cyrus, after Babylon was destroyed. We also know that Babylon is about to be destroyed again. And God bless his people to build his temple and his church. So he says, this will be done. I will yet comfort Zion and, and yet choose Jerusalem in the verse 17. Now there's an inset here, which I, I think even last week probably went through. But let's notice it in the light of all these scriptures that we've been reading today. Then lifted up my eyes and saw and behold four horns. A horn is something used to gouge, to gore, to destroy. Uh, He said he'd give us a horn of iron, remember. 
And I said to the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered, These are the horns, the power, which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Code words for the church. Right here. This is the area that God is going to do this in. We've, promised, we've shown it's the promised land. It's where Zion and Jerusalem are. This is the spot. This is the place that this transpires. And it's where he's going to do his work. Zion and Jerusalem, right here. Okay? So what he's talking about is here. And it's now. Because the 70 years is about up. Or is up. Maybe up first month, uh, uh, first month of the new year. In God's calendar, not man's. Then he showed me four builders and said, What do these come to do? He spoke, saying, These horns which have scattered Judah, and that no man did lift up his head, so that no man did, ashamed, confused, frustrated, uh, made small. But these are come to scare, or fray, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of spiritual Judah to scatter it, to destroy it, scatter it. Get rid of it. Thresh it, if you will. So what they are doing, trying to do to us, God says we are going to do to them. But he will make us thresh them instead. That's what Michael 4 says. That's what Isaiah 41 says. And he calls them Gentiles here. He no longer recognizes them as part of his church. They even ask a judge to make them part of the church. They're not part of the church. And if you're not a spiritual Jew, then you're a spiritual Gentile. He's talking about our enemies right here, brethren. Right here. So notice the sequence. I'm about to do this at the end of 70 years, but the enemies have to be scared and gotten rid of, cast out first. Then it changes in chapter 2. I lifted up my eyes, and here was a man with a measuring line, measuring Jerusalem, getting ready to build. And he says it'll be built in verse 4 as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle. In verse 5, For I, says the Eternal, will be to her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her. So he says, I will protect. I will take care of you. Don't fear. Have faith. Have trust in me. You are to rise and thresh. You are to scare and cast out. And don't worry, I'll be a wall of fire, which means a defense, a protection to you. And when this has transpired, he's setting up the protection. Then he says, flee from the land of the north, Babylon, where you've been spread abroad, scattered. The church has been around the world. He says, save yourself, deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Same thing he tells us in Micah 4. Get out of there. Same thing he says in Isaiah 52 into the chapter. Go not with haste this time, but get out. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after the glory has he sent me to the nations which spoiled you. For he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake my hand on them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, daughter of Zion, for I will come and dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. He is going to come and protect 
and deliver his people. Uh, that kind of summarizes it, but I, I overlooked uh, Zephaniah. Here he talks about the financial crash that is going to be coming, and he says that he will uh, drive out the remnant of those who are worshiping falsely and are not turning to the true God in the right way, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Uh, but down here, after the crash, and he's told people to gather ahead of the crash, uh, if you go down to chapter 3, uh, verse 11, In that day shall you not be ashamed for all your doings, where you have transgressed against me. Whatever sins we've committed, he says he's going to wipe out. Go to Isaiah 44, and he says, I'll move them as a cloud. Go to Zechariah 3, and he says, I'll remove them in one day. That's in the context of the two witnesses and the remnant as well. So he says he'll get rid of our sins. For then I will take away out of the midst of you them that rejoice in your pride, and you shall no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. So any who are lifted up in pride and haughtiness and presumptuousness are going to be taken away. And all I will leave in the midst of you is an afflicted and poor people are meek and humble people is all that will left, be left because those with pride will be gone. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Total protection. And he tells us to sing and rejoice that he has taken away our judgments and those things that we have done wrong. He has cast out your enemy. He's going to do that. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of you. You shall not see evil any more. That's what he told us in Zechariah 1 and 2 just now. And this is just before Haggai. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear you not, and to Zion let not your hands be slack, for God is in the midst of you, God with us, and will rejoice over us with joy. Verse 19, behold, at that time, he says uh, something about the solemn assembly in verse 18. He'll gather them that are sorrowful, who are repentant for the solemn assembly. That might be Passover. Behold, at that time, I will undo all that afflict you, and I will save her that limps and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame, and then I'll gather you. So the enemies are going to be taken away, then the gathering of Haggai is going to occur. And the enemies have to be taken away in Zechariah 1, and then the protection and the blessing of God will return, and the house and the temple will be built. So what we're seeing here in many, many scriptures is a sequence of events. We have to do our part, and we have to move out here. We have to serve God. Then he says, enemies will arise, and when the enemies are taken care of, then the work will go forward, just as it did in Ezra and Nehemiah, just as it did in the days of Esther and Mordecai. And we have just kept Purim, which represents being delivered from our enemies. And we've read all these other scriptures that back that up as direct end-time prophecies. So the next thing that needs to be done at the end of 70 years is the enemies be gone 
and then the work can move forward with the gathering and the building of the temple. So if you want something to pray about, do as David did and pray that our enemies be vanquished. Pray as Jeremiah did, that they will be vanquished. And God has given his judgment that that will happen. So we can pray in faith. We can pray in confidence. We can go before God and say, you have promised this, now do it. And the reason we can pray in that kind of prayer and confidence is because we believe these words and we turn to God wholeheartedly and serve Him to our, the very best of our ability. There is no time right now for distractions anywhere. We're there. Now is the time to truly focus. And I'm showing you in these scriptures what has to be done and what needs to be the focus. And we're not just to sit back and say, oh, God will deliver us. No. He says he'll give us the power and the might and the strength and make our horn as iron, our feet as brass, and our sheep, our, our teeth as sharp threshing instruments to bite with. That's what he tells us we're to do. And he will back us up and he'll make it happen. So now the Purim's over, we'll quit talking about this for the moment. And let's go forward in faith and trust in God and do our part and know that he will do his part.